0: This is the MDT podcast,
1: a podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT.
2: The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to the MDT. I am Jo Preston. And I am a consultant geriatrician at St George's Hospital in London.
1: And I'm in Wilkinson. I am a consultant geriatrician at East Surrey Hospital in Surrey.
2: And this week we're going to be talking about falls. Now we have had an episode on falls before. This is specifically going to be falls prevention, sort of uh, community setting prevention programmes.
1: Yeah, and the last one we did was back in the first series and that was looking at sort of the, the management of someone who's fallen.
2: The kind of investigations and what might cause it. So this is more about the...
0: You stop it happening.
2: Yeah, exactly. The MDT
0: Podcast.
2: And now for some feedback. So we have been at the BGS conference, just back from the BGS conference in Glasgow. So there's going to be a special episode coming out very soon from that called MDT and Cake. And while we were up there, we got some of the wider MDT to help us record some of the best bits that they liked. So we had... Annabelle Rule, Abigail Taylor, Lucy Liu and Joe Jennings, who are therapists and nurses who were up in the conference as well. Have a listen to that for our kind of highlights of what we enjoyed from the conference. Um, Going on to where people are listening, we've had a tweet from Josie Bowler, who's an OT who was feeling too unwell for uni, but listened to the MDT in bed. We had James Woods, who was one of our previous MDT Mug winners, if you remember back, asking if he could use the infographics that we use on the website and on Twitter um, on his ward. And that's absolutely what they're for. So anyone out there who likes the pictures that we've been creating, they're on the website to download in PDF format. Use them for whatever you like. That's absolutely what they're for. And finally, we've been asking for some feedback on series three and four topics that people might like. And one suggestion came from James Fisher, which was one on Parkinsonism. And that's definitely something that we're planning to do and actually something we might take uh, aside for a little bit and do a few episodes in a little bit more detail. If you have any other things that you would like us to cover, then do let us know. Tweet us at MDT underscore podcast or email us at our website, which is info at thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk or find us on Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast.
0: The MDT podcast. As with all of
1: our episodes, really, this this means something slightly different to each member of the MDT. So we've gone and had a chat to some of our MDT mm-hmm. about what falls prevention means to them.
2: I'm a consultant in care of the elderly and acute medicine. I'm the lead clinician for the Trust in Falls and uh, I run Falls Clinics. Trying to prevent people to fall, it's, um, it's a complex process that involves uh, more than one discipline. Uh, you have to to offer the patient a holistic, geriatric, comprehensive assessment. But above this, you also need to involve other therapists, both from the community and from our hospital.
1: So it is something that's really relevant to all of us. Yeah. Um, but it's relevant in slightly different ways to each member of the MDT. Mm. Uh, we often start these episodes off with a, with a definition. But we've we've done we kind falls. Of did that in the last episode, yeah. didn't we? Yeah. So, so, if you want a definition of falls, go back to the last yeah. one.
2: We'd recommend go and listen to the other one anyway, because yes. it pairs up quite nicely with yeah. this one.
1: But suffice to say, falls are common. Yep. Yeah. The World Health Organization says that about a third of people over the age of sixty-five fall every year, mm-hmm. and of those, two thirds will have an injury. Yeah. And about a quarter of those injuries will require an intervention by a healthcare professional.
2: Yeah.
1: So, not only are falls common but the consequences of them are also common.
2: And the ways that people might present or the different people they might present to for those injuries can be quite varied, can't they?
1: And about a third of people who have a fall have a subsequent decline in their function afterwards.
2: Mm. That might affect their ability to be able to stay at home or to manage quite in the way that they were doing so independently, enjoying the things that they like to do normally. So it can have a really big impact on their lives.
1: And I think the cause of that Really is tied into what we've talked about frailty before, mm. in that if people fall over, it implies something about their physiological reserve, mm. and actually that that's why people then decompensate and may never quite get back to their baseline. I think if someone has a fall, yep. there's about a two-third chance that they'll have a fall again, mm,
2: which is really quite high, yeah. isn't it?
1: And that, that's within a year, so that's like it's really high. Yeah.
2: So what we're mainly going to concentrate on today is about falls prevention. And the bottom line for this is that falls prevention programmes do work. And the number needed to treat to prevent a fall is 11.
1: That, I think, is the lowest number needed to treat I've seen for anything.
2: Yeah, it's very low.
1: Yeah, And there's lots of studies that back that up, really. Mm. Um, There's a Cochrane review. There's a Cochrane review, yeah. And that shows that group and home-based exercise programmes and home safety interventions reduce the rate of falls and the risk of an individual falling. Yeah. The Cochrane Review also shows that multifactorial assessments and intervention programmes mm-hmm. reduce the rate of fall, but not the risk of falling. So okay. an individual will still fall, but the frequency, the number of falls that person has okay. will reduce. Tai Chi would be an example of that.
2: Okay.
1: Um, the review also comments on vitamin D, but we're I'm going to so talk about that at the end. so glad we vitamin D into the, yeah. into the game. So we're going to talk about that at the end, then. <laughs> okay.
2: Mm. All right. Okay. Stay on the edge of your seat, people. Yes.
1: Vitamin D creeps into everything, I <laughs> It
2: does. Uh, so there's an article in the BMJ uh, this year, 2016, looking at uh, reviewing falls prevention programs in community dwelling older adults.
1: What did you think of this article?
2: Uh, I thought it was quite a good review, but it's not that easy to
1: follow. I thought it was quite hard to read. I have to say, <laughs> I thought I, you know, because intuitively I sort of think I, I know a bit about falls prevention, and and I've we'd hope you know I've yeah hopefully, and I've I've done quite a bit of reading about it before, and the article. The content of the article was really good, yeah. but I just found it difficult to read. <laughs> I ended up you know, was one of those things, you know, where you, you read each paragraph three or four times to
2: yeah. understand yeah. what they're so trying So we're going to summarise it for you, yeah. so you don't have to do that. Sorry if you wrote it and you're listening. But so falls result from interactions between multiple individual and environmental risk factors. So we've said this before. There's lots of different things. So it can be someone's frailty status, whether they have polypharmacy as well as looking at their gait and balance and also their comorbidities that they may have. There's been quite a lot of research into looking at lots of other risk factors that older people might have in the community, which we're going to talk through now, which are summarised quite nicely in a little table. Mm. But I think the key
1: point about all of these is that someone who falls may present to a number of different services. Mm. So you may not intuitively see yourself as someone who sees people that fall, for example, if you're a podiatrist or you work in continence services Mm -hmm. or something like that but i think the thing that this article really does make the point of is that the management of older people is multifactorial and needs that comprehensive geriatric assessment and a fall or a risk factor for a fall is one of the triggers into that
2: yes i have a slightly wider lens when you're seeing people presenting maybe just with the injury for a wound dressing or something like that So we're going to talk through risks and then examples of that. So previous falls, so have they fallen in the last 12 months? Yeah. Um, Do they have a fear of falling? That's huge. We've talked about that before Um, because people will be more likely to fall because they become hesitant and then change their gait.
1: I think at some point we need to a whole episode on that, don't we? (laughs) We've not done yet, but it comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, And If there's balance problems, Yeah. so so if someone's got a postural sway, Mm -hmm. increases their risk of falling, and you may pick that up as a... Physiotherapist or yeah. as a, as a, a nurse or assessing someone in the calling community.
2: calling someone through to the waiting room to see them as they stand up. Um, have they got gait and mobility problems? So is there variability in their step strength?
1: And um, we'll talk more about that in a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Have they got pain? Yeah. Foot pain we've talked about in the episode on foot health.
2: Yeah. Um, are they on any drugs that might be contributing to falling? So polypharmacy is technically more than four... Non-essential medications that they're on. Are there any psychotropic medications, antidepressants, any hypnotics or sedative medications?
1: People who have got cardiovascular conditions or cognitive impairment. Yeah. Both of those are risk factors.
2: Human incontinence. We know that continence and falls go hand in hand. Um, do they have to rush to the bathroom at night and that's when they're yeah. tripping?
1: And then other neurological problems. So stroke or people with diabetes that develop yeah. peripheral neuropathy, things like that. So the article talks through a strategy hmm. to assess someone for a falls risk assessment and really goes through five sections to the strategy. Yeah.
2: It's pretty similar to a CGA, isn't it? It
1: is. So there's a history and examination. Yep. There's a drugs review. Mm-hmm. There's, so it um, could be
2: the GP or the pharmacist.
1: There's a specific review of some of the medical risk factors. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not quite sure why, but it goes specifically into vision, syncope, uh, cardiovascular, cerebrovascular and diabetes reviews. Yeah. Um, a functional and mobility assessment yep. and thinking about the psychological effects of the fall or the falls, Yeah. And finally, the psychological effects of the fall. Mm. Really thinking about that somebody may reduce their level of mobility to reduce the risk of falls, but...
2: but then you get into the cycle where they're weaker, they're stiffer, yeah. more likely to fall.
1: Yeah, so it's important to try and encourage someone or develop techniques to try and assist with the coping from the anxiety of this yeah. fear of falling. Um, And all of that, as we said, is essentially a a CGA. Yeah. Yeah. So given that, let's have a think a little bit about falls prevention programs. And there's another article that we'll reference in the show notes that's a systematic review of exercise programs for older people.
2: Mm. So this is, uh, the last episode was a little bit more about the why have they fallen, uh, how do we investigate it? This is going to focus a lot more on the kind of balance, the programs that you can do to actually influence their falls risk. And um, exactly what those are.
1: And we know that falls prevention programmes work. Mm-hmm. We said that, but the yeah. number needed to treat of 11. Interestingly, also, the protective effect is most pronounced for those people that have the most severe fall-related injuries. OK. So there's about a 37% risk of injurious falls mm-hmm. after falls prevention programmes. That is increased to 43% for people with severe injuries. mm mm-hmm. And that's further increased to 60% uh, for a reduction in fractures. Okay. So not only do falls prevention programmes reduce falls, Mm. they also reduce the consequence of the falls and particularly the most injurious falls. And I think the reasons for that reduction in injuries and falls is that the risk factors are similar. So your risk factor for having a fall is very similar to your risk factor of injuring yourself. So most falls prevention uh, programmes are multi-component. Yeah. So they don't just look at... Gate. they also look at functional training strengthening exercises mm. flexibility endurance and actually have this sort of whole hodgepodge of different interventions yeah. that you can kind of tie together under the banner of strength and balance training
2: yeah and you kind of need that don't you every person's going to need a slightly different thing there are so many components involved here that yep. just one intervention is never going yep. to work as much as that would make a lovely trial outcome it's just not real life no. medicine
1: and there's evidence that These interventions not only improve strength and balance, Mm. but also therefore improve reaction time, improve the gait, improve strength, coordination, and overall the physical functioning, as well, as we'll talk about in the next episode, on cognitive function, particularly the executive function.
2: Yeah, that's something we're going to come back to in a lot more detail.
1: So they think that exercise prevents injuries not only by improving balance... Mm -hmm such as things like Tai Chi and Otago that we'll talk about in a second, or by reducing the risk of falling, Mm -hmm. but actually by improving cognitive function, Mm -hmm. some of the speed and the effectiveness of your protective mechanisms, so quickly extending your arm or grabbing onto an object, um, and perhaps even by changing the way that the energy is absorbed in your soft tissues. So if you've got stronger muscles, the muscles may well absorb some of the energy a bit more And stop the fracture that may happen if your muscle bulk wasn't there.
2: That's a clever way to think about it. I'd not thought about it that way before.
1: And I mentioned Otago.
2: You mentioned Otago.
1: So I think we need a nerd alert and we need to talk about what Otago is or where Otago is. So I think we need to start with where Otago is. Ah. So Otago is a medium sized town in New Zealand.
2: Mm. There you go, kids.
1: And they had a falls exercise program.
2: And they looked at about 1,000 people who were living at home. The age range was quite broad, but the kind of people that we're seeing, so between 65 and 97, good to see people in there that old. And they found that falls were reduced in males and females by 35% overall.
1: Which is in keeping with the meta-analyses and stuff we've talked about already.
2: Yeah, the highest impact was seen in those who were over 80 and had had a previous fall before. And the programme was designed specifically to prevent falls and it consists of a set of leg muscle strengthening and balance retraining exercises that progress in difficulty and they have a walking plan associated with it.
1: So The exercises are individually prescribed and they increase in difficulty during a series of home mm-hmm. visits. And I think you get five home visits by a trained instructor during the course of the programme. Mm-hmm. And each person receives a booklet with the instructions in and each exercise is prescribed in that. And they also get some ankle cuff weights that start at a kilo and go up to provide resistance for the strengthening exercises.
2: And they take about 30 minutes to complete, don't they? Um, and they're expected to exercise three times a week and go for a walk at least two times a week as well. Mm. And they get lots of support and motivation alongside the program. So participants record the days so that they complete the program and then the instructor telephones them each month and between the home visits to find out how they're getting on. They follow-up visits are about six months.
1: Yeah. So it's quite a high dose, if you like, of exercise. Mm. So there's something that they have to do most days and they have to go out and walk in addition to the strength and balance training. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things is that sometimes you see false prevention programs and they say, well, we do a modified Otago. It's like, I don't think you can. <laughs> it is but what it's, it is. It's not a tar- <laughs> If you're going to do something that's evidence-based, this is what you have to do. <laughs> yeah. You can't say, well, we don't like this bit, we're not going to take this bit away, yeah. but we're going to do this. When something is evidence-based, it's evidence-based. You have to do this. It's
2: like a modified egg sandwich that doesn't have an egg in.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: It's just <laughs> like a modified egg
1: sandwich. And nicely, the Otago, its what it says is echoed by the Agile guidelines.
2: Yeah. So they say exercise programmes aiming to reduce falls should be high dose. And by high dose, they mean more than 50 hours over six months.
1: And that the exercise programmes should have a high balance challenge component. Mm-hmm. That means, So that's not just simple balance exercises, that's actually sort of progressing that on and making it difficult.
2: And they also make the point that people who are at risk of falling should be asked if they can get up from the floor. And if they don't know how to do that, teaching them strategies to be able to do that and have the strength to do that, so that if they do end up falling, they can get themselves up again, yeah. out of danger.
1: Yeah. Some people fall a lot. But they may not injure themselves in all those falls. Mm. So being able to get up off the floor prevents that long lie on the floor, which then has the whole knock-on medical consequences of it. Yeah, it can
2: be really quite severe, can't it?
1: So we'll put the reference to both of those things Mm -hmm. uh, in the show notes and also the falls prevention programme from Otago in the show notes too.
2: So Next we're going to talk about going to visit the person at home, see where they live, see where they're walking and falling. So, there's a randomized controlled trial of 842 houses that showed the modifications to the home reduced the rate of injuries from falls by 39% compared to those who were on the waiting list, which they used as a control group. I think it's quite an nice. Interesting way of doing it, isn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah. It's almost making a. A good thing out of what I think probably was a bad situation for them, that they had a long waiting list, yeah. so they were able to compare the two sides. Yeah. And this is published in the Lancet, so this is good quality stuff.
2: Yeah, and that's quite nice. So we all intuitively know, I think because we have OTs that we work with that do this kind of thing that it works, but it's quite nice to see that reduction of nearly 40%. It's great. It's big, isn't it? Yeah,
1: Really big. With with you know quite a cost-effective intervention, one would think. Mm. There are various home assessment checklists. We're not going to go through them. Pretty much they're all designed to identify three or four key things.
2: Yeah. So first is environmental hazards. So things that can be removed or avoided. So things like tripping obstacles, like cords, rugs, furniture, slippery surfaces or poorly illuminated areas. So if the stairs don't have very good lighting, you might not be able to see exactly what you're walking on.
1: And that ties into the visual assessment that you need to do with someone that's falling. Secondly, they look at accessories that can be installed or furniture Mm -hmm. that could be modified to facilitate the transferring from one to another or walking aids like ramps or making sure the toilet seats are at the proper height or that there are grab bars next to the toilet Mm -hmm. or shower, that beds are at the correct height to help someone, Mm -hmm. Um, that if you've got pathways that there are railings there for people to hold on to.
2: And then looking at the need and whether there's any opportunity for using assistive gadgets and devices... Um, so things to help you extend your reach, so gadgets that will allow you to do that, falls monitoring devices and alert systems to So if you do fall, it may be a pendant alarm or something along yeah. those lines.
1: So three things for the home visit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Look at the environment,
2: mm-hmm.
1: look at the furniture and the accessories, and then can any assistive gadgets help?
2: And I think the really nice thing about identifying the kind of environmental type hazards isn't you can deal with them then and there.
1: Yeah, you can roll the rug up. Yeah, get it out of the way. You can move the obstacles, rearrange the room, yeah,
2: get a different chair, raise the chair. Whatever it is, it's quite a simple intervention that can make a huge difference. So finally, we're gonna. Well, before we get onto vitamin D, the last thing we're going to talk about is balance, hmm. and there are lots of different outcome measures for assessing balance. Um, and when you're looking for an outcome measure need to give consideration to the relation of the properties of the measure. So is it reliable? Is it valid? Is it sensitive to change? So there are a few measures out there. They are things like the Berg Balance Scale, which I know is quite commonly used, and the timed up-and-go test, very commonly used. Very good. Another is the Performance Orientated Mobility Assessment, POMA.
1: POMA, yeah.
2: The 180-degree turn and the four-square step test which I have to say I don't think I've used the lot.
1: I've not used, no. I use the 180-degree turn in clinic a lot. Yeah. Um, and so you watch someone walk across the room, um, you get them to turn 180 degrees and walk back to you, yeah. and you count the number of steps it takes to do that turn. Mm. And if they take more than four steps, then their chances of falling is increased. And that's one of the things recommended in the NICE guidelines, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll, I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Yeah. So there's that one, and the other is the timed up and go.
2: Yeah, which I think quite unusual for someone to not know the timed up and go if you work in geriatrics or have seen it you might have seen it and not know what people are doing because it looks like you're just walking them which you are but you're looking at lots of different things aren't you
1: Mm. so you get someone to stand up walk about three meters or walk three meters from their chair turn around and navigate back to the chair Mm -hmm. and sit back down again Mm -hmm. and if that takes more than 12 14 seconds and it's associated with an increased risk of falls with a sensitivity of about 80 Mm percent um, and a specificity of almost 100, it's high.
2: Yeah.
1: Nice, recommend this as well. But interestingly, if you go into the details of the guidelines, there's not huge numbers of people in any of these studies. Really? It's based on four studies, Um, 60 people in one, 30 in another, 60 in another, and 100 in another. So They're quite small studies. Yeah.
2: But it's one of those things that, okay, the outcome that you're looking for is actually uh, a time second, but you get so much information from watching that person do mm. it because it isn't just their muscle strength. It isn't just how long it takes them to walk. It is, can they remember the instructions? Yeah, so cognition. Do they have proximal power? So the kind of muscles next to the hips, so the kind of thigh muscles, can they push up out of the chair? Have they got that as a problem? Then how do they step? How do they yeah. walk? All look of at their gait, their heel strike, their yeah.
1: swing face of the gait, their turning, their yeah. postural sway. It looks at all of those things. It's, it's so useful.
2: You get so much information from yeah. it. So, yeah, it's, it's really useful. So, finally, we are going to talk about vitamin D supplementation. Mm. The big question. The big question.
1: Can I answer the big question?
2: <laughs> can you do it succinctly?
1: Yes. The jury's out. <laughs> um, so the idea of, behind vitamin D and it keeps coming up when you talk about falls, is that it's thought to be important because a low vitamin D level can be associated with a proximal myopathy and therefore falls.
2: It also is important because of bone health as well, isn't it? The the kind of risk of the fall thereafter.
1: But a meta-analysis in 2012... Showed that supplementing the vitamin D didn't reduce the overall rate of falls, mm. but it was helpful in certain subgroups. So this is an overall supplementation versus specific people. It was particularly helpful in those people who had a low vitamin D.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In those people who received vitamin D supplements, they fell less.
2: So people who were deficient.
1: Yeah, but with a relative risk of point seven, so not huge. Okay. There was a Cochrane review that says it might be helpful for patients who live in care homes. Mm-hmm. What it is helpful for, I think, is the bone health in those people who've had a fall. Yeah. And that's where I use it at the moment.
2: Yeah. I think it's one of those areas, vitamin D, and we may do a, a whole episode on vitamin D at some point because it is really interesting in that it is clearly linked to people who are frail, people who are falling, but the the direct connection between the two is not really clear. No. So it does indicate that potentially someone is frailer, but to what extent, I'm not really sure. Yeah, and
1: cause-effect is difficult. Is that because yeah. they're not going outside because they're frail yeah. and they're not getting the vitamin D?
2: So let's yeah. let's save that yeah. for another time because I think it, it could be a whole episode.
1: Yeah. So overall, we've talked a little bit about falls, falls yeah. prevention strategies. I think one of the, the things that shines through when you think about falls mm. and falls prevention is that the evidence is quite good for individual programmes. As we hinted with that modified Otago thing, actually putting the recommendations into practice is relatively poor. Mm. And the BMJ article from this year by Vieira, part of their conclusion is that there is a need for enhanced knowledge by healthcare teams on falls prevention programmes and also the need for screening, assessment, intervention and a whole sort of coordinated care delivery about falls. Yeah. But we're not quite there yet.
2: Mm. And also recognising that people at risk of falls are risk at risk of the other geriatric syndromes so frailty, continence issues, all of the things we've been talking about, cognitive impairment, all of those things. So actually it needs to trigger a wider review of this person. Is there anything else we can optimise, not just their strength and the form?
1: Yeah and we need to think about integrating these different sets of recommendations Mm. because we've got recommendations for frailty We've got some for falls, we've got some for all sorts of stuff. There's
2: so much overlap with all of them. There is,
1: and I think some of the the nice guidelines for multimorbidity may start to do some of that. It certainly starts the conversation at least.
2: So this week uh, we've been talking about falls prevention programmes, so hopefully you have a better understanding of the role of those and what they involve. Have an idea of when to perform falls risk assessments? Often. (laughs) Whenever you can. Yes. To know what components make up a falls risk assessment, to understand how to perform a basic timed up-and-go test that we've just talked through, and to appreciate that falls are a symptom and not a diagnosis in themselves, and that falls can lead to a, a fear of falling, which can enter then into a cycle of deterioration. So It's really important that you pick it up, refer it on to someone who can help the person get better.
1: And if you've got any examples of really good falls prevention programs, yes, let us then know. let us know. and You can contact us via the website
2: which is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk
1: or on Twitter
2: at MDT underscore podcast
1: or on Facebook and we are facebook.com forward slash MDT MDT podcast. podcast.
0: The MDT podcast.
2: And now it's time for the MDT teaser, the catchily titled MDT guessing game where we give each other a series of increasingly more simple clues about an item that our MDT may use. Whose goes it first?
1: I don't know. Do you want to go first this I week? want to go
2: first. <laughs> I actually only have four clues because I think you'll get it.
1: Have you written these yourself, Joe? I have. You've not used your team to write these at all?
2: No, not okay. this one. Okay. They've given me a great one for next week. Though. Okay. All right. So with this item, with the clues, I'm going to do them in the style of charades for some of them, okay, to help you.
1: Again, we've talked about this before. You know, this is a podcast, and people can't see you. Yes, I can. Come
2: on, bear with me. Okay. All right. So, this item is two words. Yeah. First word, one syllable.
1: Yeah.
2: And it's related to water in more ways than one.
1: Hydro, aqua. Don't know.
2: Nope. Okay. Second clue. Second word, one syllable, sounds like grand.
1: A one syllable word that sounds like water, and then a one syllable word sounds like grand.
2: First clue said it was related, related to, water to water in more water. ways than one. Didn't say it sounds yes.
1: like it's not wet wipe. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like grand. No, no,
2: okay. it's not. Okay, putting the two words together, they are used to support people who cannot drink enough. Don't know. Okay, then this next clue is probably not going to help. <laughs> <laughs> the first word is I again. don't know the first word. <laughs> I know. The first word is onomatopoeic. I gave you that clue before. To do with water. Yes. It's an onomatopoeic word. To do with water. It's related to water in more ways than water. Like wet
1: or splash or something, but it's one syllable. Mm. Wet and grand.
2: No idea. Okay, I've come up with a fifth clue. It's tall and thin and silver and can be found next to the bed. A drip stand.
1: (laughs) I was thinking when you said at the beginning the first word was two words, like the first bit was two words, so I was trying to think of, like it would have been drippened,
0: oh, I
2: not two s- words. No, that would have been two syllables. Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> Boo. Okay, right, my turn. All right. So, your first clue is when I was a pre-registration house officer, we used to only write this information in the notes.
2: Is it a awful? form? is it
1: it is oh, yeah. my third clue i want to talk about because the third clue is that there is sometimes confusion over the information contained within this yeah so dna r reports to resuscitation only yes so it only becomes else relevant when someone needs resuscitating, mm-hmm. yes, it doesn't mean you're not going to take them to, to you. Yeah, doesn't mean you're not going to give Treat them the ventilation. Them it doesn't mean you're not going to things. give them intravenous fluids or antibiotics. It just or admit them to hospital. hospital. It just means you're not going to resuscitate them when their heart stops. Ah, do, yay, do. I do So you won, yay. <laughs> so now we have one for you. It's Christmas time is coming and so we thought we would give you an a, recap of, a
2: recap of the clues. A recap of the
1: clues, yeah and remember you've got a chance to win an MDT mug.
2: Who doesn't want one of those? Ma- exactly, yeah. there's not many of them out there. So we, we we're aware that it's been a little bit harder this time so we thought we'd do a quick recap one by one. Yeah so kick off Joe.
1: Oh okay uh, so the first clue is you use this in a cavity and you use it twice
2: a day It's important in all patients. Uh, It's delivered as part of routine care for most patients, um, but anyone can give more.
1: Okay, then episode six, we had... This item is more of a tool which uses lots of equipment, one of which is a tray and can be multicoloured.
2: And comes in gel form quite often. Yeah. And there are multiple colours, but only one taste.
1: And you have it and you do it in your own bathroom.
2: And then the new clue for this week is... Following a stroke... This can reduce the risk of pneumonia from aspiration.
1: Yeah, and so that's the clue for this time. So let us know your suggestions. Use the hashtag MDTeaser or on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast.
2: Or through our website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.
1: Fantastic. So that concludes this episode. And the
0: MDT will reconvene in one week.
2: One week, because it's Christmas it's coming. It's Christmas
1: coming. We're going to squeeze an extra special episode in for you.
0: Dr Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.